0: Mitchell and Webb Sound, starring David Mitchell and Robert Webb, with Olivia Colman and James Barton. Hello and welcome to Arguing the Moral Toss. This week, our panel will be taking evidence from a range of experts on the controversial issue of whether householders should be lawfully allowed to shoot the distributors of takeaway pizza menus. (laughs) What does the panel think?
1: Angus? Surely the right to defend your home from uncalled-for fast food delivery literature is up there with the right to freedom of speech that divides free societies like ours from
2: becoming just like Nazi Germany.
0: (laughs) Duncan.
2: I think that's outrageous. Surely the right to deliver pizza menus is actually one of the greatest expressions of the idea of free speech, and frankly denying it would bring us to a situation not that very different from the one in Stalin's Russia.
0: Mary?
3: I'm afraid I haven't been listening.
0: (laughs) Okay, now, if we can take evidence from our first witness, Kenny Scott part-time deliverer of pizza menus for Chicago Pizza Ring and professor of moral philosophy at Telford Agricultural (laughs) College.
1: (laughs) Angus. Professor Scott, what if on a certain day you kept delivering and delivering your pizza menus until a householder was backed up against the wall, suffocating from your literature? Couldn't he then, quite fairly, in self-defense, try to kill you? He'd never do that. He might, and if he did, Duncan, wouldn't stopping him doing something about it be rather akin to the situation people found themselves in in Hitler's Germany? No. Are you saying you think Hitler's Germany was actually a very lovely place
2: to live? No. Yes, you are. This this is outrageous, Angus. You're trying to lead me into the kind of self-incriminating argument that frankly wouldn't be out of place in one of Stalin's show trials. I take exception to that. That's the
1: sort of meaningless smear used by Goebbels under the Third Reich. You're
0: like Stalin. You are Hitler. (laughs) Mary, anything to add?
3: I feel very tired.
0: Thank you. Tune in next week when we'll be arguing the moral toss over the ordination of freshwater salmon.
2: (laughs) Excuse me. Kate? Kate Richards? Sorry, do I know you? Yes, Mark Carter. Don't tell me you've forgotten. We we met at that charity ball, Joffa House, May 1994.
3: Oh, maybe. Yes!
2: I'm so glad I've finally seen you again. Do you have a minute or two?
3: Well, I'm just waiting for someone, actually.
2: Great, great. It'll only take a minute. I just need to get something out of my rucksack.
3: What on earth? Is that a keyboard?
2: There. Kate, I've written you a song.
3: Uh, But I've only met you once. Shh!
2: I first met you in the garden Wearing flawless evening wear Your beauty was so stunning I could only stand and stare I asked you if by chance you cared to dance. You said yes, and we waltzed the night away amongst the rhododendron plants. Yes, the moment that we met, I sensed a destiny divine. And the meaning of my life since then has been to make you mine. Together, we two make one perfect whole, Kate. You are my soulmate.
3: Well. That's lovely. I don't know what to say. Oh, Michael. Uh,
2: Katie, what's what's going on?
3: Oh, nothing. It's fine. Let's
2: just. Michael, what? Michael Edwards. It's me, Mark Carter. We we met at Fiona's housewarming, nineteen ninety eight. Did we? Yes. I can't believe this. Two in one day. Michael, I've written you a song. (laughs) You what? Shh. (laughs) I first met you at a party. It was seven forty nine. You were wearing a grey sweater that was similar to mine I asked you if, like me, you shopped at Next You said no Then broke off quite abruptly Cos your phone received a text Yes, I only met you once I think about you, not at all And since then I've had no feelings for you That I can recall Our relationship's the ultimate in low-maintenance You're an acquaintance. (laughs) Good evening and welcome to Porn on 4, (laughs) Radio 4's brand new pornography review and discussion show. We've been looking at some of the new porn releases and seeing which we found most... sexual. (laughs) Jeff, take us through them. Thanks, Martin. Well, the first one is... Um, well, I can't
1: say what it is because the title's too rude, but I certainly enjoyed it. There were, there were many scenes in which a man and a woman were having sexual re- intercourse, let's call it what it is, and many of them made me feel that I'd like to have some sex as well, <laughs> which I'm sure was the intention. So, good porn film
2: there. Did it make you... Did it make all... me wa- what...? D- did it make you wonder... Oh, thank goodness. Did, <laughs> did it make you wonder if the distinction that we make between art and pornography is a spurious one? No, I was just
1: thinking about having sex the whole time.
2: Right, and, and what's next? Well, the
1: others are all just like the first one, really. You know, great. <laughs> right. Do you mind if I go now? Why? I can't say that, can I? <laughs> Oh, that is typical. They're always firing shells at us. I hate this.
0: It's horrible here. Really horrible. I know it is. It's muddy and smelly and just really dangerous. I hate the way everyone gets killed. (laughs) Can't we go? This war is horrid.
1: I know. We can't, though. That's partly what's so awful. I hate it. So do I. In his quest to tell the truth about the experiences which have informed the 20th century psyche filmmaker Paul Carver continues to arouse both critical and popular controversy.
2: In The Truth About War, I was trying to convey the realities of war, the First World War in particular, and show that far from being some Mills and Boone romantic adventure, it was actually probably quite a gruesome experience for most of the people there.
1: We're going to hear a clip now from your 1982 drama, The Truth About Unemployment.
2: Good.
3: (laughs) But we still haven't got any money.
0: I'm doing the best I can. The trouble is I can't get a job.
3: And I can't get one because I've got to look after the bairn.
0: <coughs> this is so
2: <coughs> stressful! <laughs> this film was aiming to show that, far from being some action-packed science-fiction epic, the real story of unemployment is very upsetting for all the people involved.
0: <laughs> I hate this. It's all so unfortunate. I'm going to drink some more whiskey. What are you looking at?
3: Oh, why did you do that?
0: It's the booze, you bitch. It's the only way I can cope. I'm resorting to violence now.
3: This isn't helping.
0: I know that deep down.
3: And because you're poorly educated, you can't be emotionally articulate about it.
2: Well, quite. Quite. And the future. My next project is to be The Truth About the Holocaust, where I'll be aiming to show that far from being some Chevy Chase screwball comedy, <laughs> the story of the Holocaust is profoundly brutal and unfair.
1: Hello! All your daytime Christmases have come at once. It's me, Jason, the guy with the most thumbed page in presenter spotlight. And welcome to another edition of Where It Is, Where It Is, Where It Is. Basically a BBC rip-off of location, location, location... Too obvious in my view, but I just get in the cab that comes. Anyway, <laughs> it's the show where people with slightly less money than they think bloody-mindedly refuse to compromise about what house to buy until weeks after the crew's gone home. And then, over the credits, we go, John and Sue did eventually settle for that crummy bungalow we told them they'd have to all along or some such. <laughs> so, let's meet Karen and what? Sophie? Karen and Sophie? Hi. Hi. So, you're a couple, are you?
2: Yes, that's right.
1: Are you... Sorry, are you actually a woman?
2: I am now, yes.
1: Oh, God. Did, did you go for the whole... Yes, on the NHS. Hmm. You see, you get to resenting that when you're in my tax bracket. I probably pay for three of the likes of you. I should get to keep the knobs. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of which, fixtures and fittings. As in, don't be obsessed by. My first tip in house hunting is don't worry about things you can change. No one should know that better than you, Sophie. <laughs> Sophie have lived in their 18th century thatched cottage in Suffolk for 10 years, but with them both working in town, they're looking for somewhere a bit more central with a bit more space for the same price. <laughs> I asked them if they wanted cream on top.
3: I just think we're going to need more room.
2: You're going to need more money. <laughs> The location's perfect. If there was somewhere around here with a larger living room and maybe a garden... Look, love, mate,
1: whatever. The, the only reason this is in your price range at all is because it's subsiding and there's only ten years left on the lease.
3: Um, is there off-road parking?
1: Yeah, by the pool, just along from the helipad. <laughs> so, a bit of a thumbs down for flat number one. Number two is quite a bit bigger, but quite a bit further out. It's not rocket science. <laughs>
3: A lovely big bathroom
2: Oh yes, it's, it's got a corner bath Cut that out Right We like likey, we like likey
3: It's just not very central
2: Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have this bathroom But in the other flat's location Yeah, that's what Sting's got
3: I mean, in a way, maybe we're better off staying where we are
1: Yeah uh, 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 What? I'm, I'm sorry, no, you're moving house Get with the programme, literally, get with the programme
3: I just don't think we can afford what we want
1: Right, I mean, what do you want me to say? This is literally what you are worth. I mean, mathematically, what you are worth buys this. So, I mean, you can stand here and slag off the dado rail, but it's basically yourself you're slagging off. (laughs) Well, Karen and Sophie did eventually find their central and spacious dream flat by borrowing £50,000 off one of their dads. They might have let that little secret slip while we were panning for gold in the open sewer of Harlesden. Anyway, all right for them. Next week, a farming couple from Scotland want to relocate to central London and get told to forget it.
2: I mean, people say to me, there aren't enough fish, don't do too much fishing or there won't be any more fish. But, you know, I am a fisherman. So when the government says to me, in quotes, you must only catch such and such number of fish in a year, then I want to know what they're going to do about it. I mean, I'm the first person, obviously, to be concerned about fish stocks, not wanting a fish to run out. Of course I am. I'm a fisherman. I mean, what am I going to fish if there's no fish left? But, at the same time, I've got to kill all the fish, haven't (laughs) I? Oh, and that's a bad miss. And
1: so a chance for Stephen Lee. Now, Ted, this is missable. How do you think Stephen's going to approach it?
2: Well, Peter, in the modern game, every player has to discover his own style, his own regime, essentially what works for him. I bumped into young Matthew Stevens at the fag machine this morning. It was one of those fag machines with a curvy top that you can't put your pint on. I don't know why they make them like that. It's one of those little things that can put pressure on a young player.
1: Some people, I don't think the thought of Snooker enters their minds.
2: Anyway, he was telling me how he likes to kick off a day at the table with just a shandy, would you believe?
1: Must have made you raise an eyebrow.
2: Yes, Peter, but then again it seems to work for him. If that's all he needs to steady himself, then good luck to him. Now, I will say that if I know anything about snooker, and I certainly don't know anything about anything else, (laughs) I think he will find that he'll want to up the ante on that shandy as he matures as a player
1: quite right Ted. I mean some people think that whiskey will float in lager that it won't go. On the contrary it mixes beautiful
2: It's <laughs> what I'm having at the moment It's a happy drink
1: <laughs> Well that was lovely, yeah, yeah, it's, nice. it was it's, lovely. Uh, it's probably best if we just work out what we each owe isn't it? Um, because yeah. Um, yeah, some, right. some of us have more than others you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No,
2: that's oh right! It. Oh! Sorry! I don't want to be difficult but I assumed we were splitting it You know, equally.
3: Well, yeah, but we've all had quite different things and not all of us were drinking.
2: Well, yeah, that's my point. I've had loads. I I mean, I've had the most. So it's pretty unfair on me if we don't split it. I mean, if I'd known I was paying for myself, then I wouldn't have had the fillet steak. Or the two desserts. I mean, I just really went for it because I thought I'd get better value then. I thought I was being subsidised. By you.
3: But I only had the soup.
2: Well, I don't want to be rude, Sarah, but that is actually your problem. (laughs) I thought you were being generous. Turns out you were being mean. Well, okay, let's not argue. We'll just split it evenly. Any more coffees for
0: anyone?
3: Yeah, make mine an Irish. Me too. Yeah, have you got any cigars?
2: Make mine a lobster. (laughs) Bobby? Bobby Ferguson? Dear God, Dickie Robson. How the rubbish are you, you bloody old sod? Not too bad, dear boy, not too bad. You? Well, I mean, one gets by, doesn't one? Struggles manfully on. You working at the moment? Yes, yes, I am as it happens. Doing a season at Darlington.
1: Oh, lovely little job, Darlington. What are you playing?
2: Left midfield. I've played it before. (laughs) I've played it before, of course, but I think one can always grow by revisiting these things.
1: Oh... Love, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, Match Weekly thought my sweeper at Derby County was pretty bloody definitive, but when I came back to the role at Wolves, I actually thought it was much
2: richer. You were bloody good at Wolves. You don't have to take any notice of that rubbish on the sports pages. It was good, solid work. Bless you. Bless you for that. So,
1: who'd be managing at Darlington now? Tommy McFadden. He's good, I think. Oh, lovely, Tommy. Yes, I know him. We did six months at Celtic together. Ah! Uh... Sorry, love, what was I thinking? We did six months at the Scottish Club together. <laughs> lovely football, a great fan. I remember one time we'd rehearsed a short corner down to the right and all of a sudden, Tommy just knocks it in. Left peg, near post. Naughty? Well, quite. I mean, I just went. <laughs> Only time in my career I've ever been substituted for corpsing. (laughs) Oh, act two, beginners. Shall we toddle back? Why not, love? What's the score again? Two nil to you, I think. Not that this ghastly
0: audience
2: seems to have noticed. Coming up
0: over on BBC Three... Relax. There's no need to listen. He's not talking about proper telly. Just take a moment. Ready and back to the world. But now on BBC One, EastEnders.
1: Well, I mean, people say to me, in quotes, Harold Wilson hasn't been Prime Minister since 1976. What do we want a look-alike of him for? But, there again, I don't look like Tony Blair. I look like Harold Wilson. <laughs> I mean, I've written to my MP, but nobody seems to be lifting a finger. According to them, Harold Wilson's dead, and that's that. <laughs> Hello?
2: Mike? Hi, is that Mike?
1: No, this is Dan.
2: Oh, OK. Uh, th- this is Mike's friend Graham. Is Mike there? Uh no. OK. Right, but, but this is Mike's phone, yeah?
1: Yeah. Uh, listen, this is a bit embarrassing, really, but the thing is, I just stole this phone.
2: <laughs> you, you stole his phone? Yeah. Bloody hell. I know. You little... Is he all right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Should be.
2: Where did you rob him?
1: By the underpass, you know?
2: Of course. I'm always telling him not to walk there.
1: Yeah, I know. It's a really bad place to walk. I'm I'm always mugging people around there. (laughs) So, you're Graham. Graham the Gob?
2: Uh,
0: um,
2: well, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was just having a look through those photos of you and Mike on that bender in Crete. God, that looks like a laugh. What?
2: what, Where did you...?
1: Oh, relax. They're in his pocket. He'd written your nickname on the back. Had he? Yeah, a bit weird, eh? Although it fits, because in some of the photos, it does look like Mike was trying a bit too hard to look wacky. Am I, am I right, or is that really unfair?
2: Well, I, I suppose... No, I guess that is sort of...
1: Don't worry. You know, we've all got mates like that, haven't we? <laughs> uh, anyway.
2: <laughs>
1: what are you up to tonight?
2: Me? Well, funnily enough, I was calling to see if I could come round and finally get my Black Hawk Down DVD from Mike.
1: Mm, a bit slow on the return, is
2: he? <laughs> you can say that again.
1: Well, listen, I'm round here at Mike's, so... <laughs> It's kind of open house, till he finds a spare set of keys. Yeah? Hey, maybe he's lost it in his secret cupboard of gay porn, cos it's a real mess in there. Really? I'm just pulling your plonker.
2: (laughs) You know what? You're actually more fun than Mike.
1: (laughs) Really, but, I mean, this is perfect, cos I'm, like, a really funny bloke, but no-one wants to know me cos, you know, I'm a mugger. <laughs> I could be the new Mike.
2: Yeah? Sure, well, the old Mike never had much to say in the pub, and... Oops,
1: hold on, got another call. Uh, see you in a bit, yeah? Hello?
3: Hello, Mike?
1: No, this is Dan. I mugged Mike earlier, but I was just talking to Graham,
2: and we're all meeting up at the flat later. Can you make it? <laughs> And you join us here at Ascot for the 3.30 Dealers' Cup, the most important race of the day. And they're off, thundering down the straight, brown fillet, a fine contender, and a beautiful, um, a magnificent, uh, got four legs, brown saddle on it thing. Yes, and as they approach the first jump, oh, and he's over, and behind him, four more, four more hairy tail-like sugar lumps, pulls a cart in a film fallen but now here comes harvey dancing firm favorite with the bookies and to my mind the fastest uh, the fastest oh clippity-clop whoa boy stroke his nose he likes that and now the final furlong and by god it's turbo randini turbo randini is neck and neck his owner must be delighted he decided last year not to sell that 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 cowboys ride them pegasus is a winged one got shot in Animal Farm and this is astonishing, there's never been a race like it, Harvey dancing in Turbo Randini neck and neck, neck and neck, galloping in unison like their lives depended on it two fantastic jockeys riding two amazing two amazing, bugger two amazing, they've got little iron shoes and you call the girl one a mare and the boy one a stallion, the queen sits sideways on her funeral funeral, black ones with plumes Dobbin, black beauty, trigger sugar I don't know, damn the race is over I wonder who won And now back to Wembley for the 2003 Sleeps on Hay, Big Teeth Like a Pony Only Taller of the Year show. (laughs) But as government minister, you must be alarmed by the findings of our recent poll, in which, for example, 57% of people say that interest rates have gone up. Well, they haven't. But I'm afraid you can't argue with the poll. 10,000 people were interviewed, and 57% of them say that interest rates have gone up. What are you doing about it? Nothing. They've gone down. Who says? You?
1: Yes. Who else? Um, well, you know, it's interest rates. They've gone down.
2: <laughs> well, let's move on. 74% of people, 74% say that the moon is on a direct collision course with East Anglia. <laughs> well, two
1: things there. Firstly, we're planning to spend £15 billion pounds installing five thermonuclear laser rockets strategically around the threatened region to stop the moon colliding with it. And secondly, it isn't. <laughs> I'm sorry? The moon definitely isn't going to collide with East Anglia. Somebody made it up and 74% of people believed him. So why are you spending the money? To show we're listening.
2: (laughs) Well, finally, Minister, what about education? 89% of people say that the education system has failed them.
1: Well, if they're right, what do they know?
0: (laughs) So, Act of Parliament says, in quotes, there's no need to have someone walk in front of your car with a red flag anymore. In fact, they mustn't we've decided they get in the way. But, you know, I was led to believe this would be a job for life. But no, apparently that's just tough shit, if you'll excuse my language. That's the message they're sending out loud and clear. Flag wavers, tough shit.
3: <laughs> We're nearly there. Are you excited? It's certainly the most intriguing
2: birthday I've ever had.
3: okay da Ta-da! We're here.
2: The peppermint horn dog? Lap dancing, Wendy.
3: That's right, Trevor. I'm going to give you the night of your life.
2: Oh. Oh, right.
3: And don't worry about me. I'm just here to pay the bills. I'm totally accepting of anything you want to do tonight.
2: In that case, do you think the pizza place might still be open?
3: Oh, come on, Trevor. It's your birthday. Let go. Give him the works, darling. Don't mind me. Look at those, Trevor. Now. (laughs) Just relax and enjoy. I've got everything lined up for a night you'll never forget.
2: Great. Brilliant.
3: I've booked a private room with hardcore playing on a loop and a pair of surgically enhanced hookers with the biggest selection of toys this side of Soho to take you to the edge of your senses and back.
2: Okay. I mean, I was very set on those driving gloves. Oh,
3: brilliant. (laughs) Great. Last year, a manila envelope selection was a bit boring, but this year, having your taboos obliterated is apparently too exciting. Trevor, you're impossible to buy for. Well,
2: I'm sorry, but I just don't feel comfortable with this.
3: OK, then. If you're refusing to explore your sexual boundaries, let's at least blow your mind on some street drugs. But... but No, Uh, Trevor, it's hookers or crack.
2: (laughs) All right, then. The crack.
1: (laughs) Hi, and welcome to Roundtable. I'm Mike Wilson, and my first guest tonight is 27-year-old author Jonathan Richmond. Hello. Jonathan, your debut novel, Strange Feet, is not only the year's biggest seller, but it's also hotly tipped to win the Booker Prize.
2: People have said a lot of kind things. Yeah, right. (laughs) I reckon I could write a book. Well, they they say everybody has a novel in them. Yeah,
1: of course, but most people don't. I reckon I do. (laughs) Okay. Your book's exactly the same as an idea I had at university. Really? I never had time to write it, but it's basically exactly the same idea.
2: Well, I suppose that's the zeitgeist for you, because I often feel that my ideas are really more cultural emanations. Than... If I'd written it up, it would have been as good as yours, if not better. <laughs> well, I, I hope the book reads deceptively simply, but it, it took six years of hard work. I to...
1: wouldn't need six years. I'd just, I just stop sleeping for a fortnight, take a bucket load of Pro Plus and just bang it out. <laughs> I, I really don't think... OK, my next guest is... <laughs> Dr. Sasha Marmier, Britain's leading expert in the field of genome research. Hello. Dr. Marmier, you think you might just have located that elusive gene responsible for ageing. Is that right?
3: Well, yes, I suppose in layman's I terms... I could have
1: done that. <laughs> oh, we've got to have Bosie. What, Lord Alfred Douglas?
2: Yeah, if, if Shaggy and Gandhi are coming, we're going to need a bit of eye candy.
1: True. Although... What? He might bring that fat old puff.
2: Oh, yeah, you mean Oscar, that that big old Irish guy who follows Bosie around with a semi on.
1: Yeah, or a Chardonnay, some sort of white wine usually. That's that's not what I meant. Oh. Oh, well, yes. I can't stand Oscar. He spends the whole time really effortfully trying to be
2: witty. Oh, it's painful, isn't it? He'll be chatting away, and he'll pick up on something, and spend the next half hour straining at it. And by the time he's come up with something, you know, the conversation's moved on. Yeah, but we all have to stop and listen. What is it, Oscar? And he's all
1: um um. Yeah, that's
2: it. Um. um, um, Bear with um, me. Um.
1: And then he finally spits something out, and he's usually said imply when he means infer or something. And, and we're like, come on, Oscar. We were there half an hour ago.
2: Please keep up. Exactly. As soon as Oscar opens his mouth, everyone knows they're in for the long haul, so they just zone out and grin politely at their shoes. Apart from Bosie, who spends the whole time rolling his eyes and doing fat impressions. But
1: everyone knows he's only trying to get into Bosie's pants.
2: Oscar couldn't get into Bosey's pants even if Bosie wasn't in them. They are far too small for Oscar. Whereas you could get two or three Bosies into Oscar's pants. And you can be pretty sure Oscar would be up for it. Yes.
1: Actually, I was talking to Bosey's dad. The Marcus of Queensbury? Yeah, I was talking to him about Bosey and Oscar, and he's just really worried. He really doesn't think it's a healthy relationship for Bosey to be getting into.
2: What, what, the age difference?
1: Yeah, I'm sure he meant the age difference. I mean, it's not like he'd have a problem with Bosey being gay. Oh, God, no. That doesn't sound like the Marquis of Queensbury at all. No, he's, he's an absolute sweetheart. But you would be worried. I mean, Oscar is just so obviously a complete weirdo. I mean, his clothes...
2: Yes, he turns up looking like your poor
1: man's George Mellie. He, he doesn't seem to get anyone's
2: references. I, mean, I don't think he's ever bought heat. He had, the daily,
1: he had the Daily Mail with him last time he came, tried to hide it. Who wouldn't? Doesn't fit with the image, does it? It's all a fraud. The clothes, the parties, the high camp. He didn't even start smoking until he found out Stephen Fry did.
2: Uh, yeah, he's basically just trying to be Stephen Fry. Who isn't?
0: That Mitchell and Webb Sound starred Robert Webb, David Mitchell, Olivia Colman and James Barkman. It was written by David Mitchell and Robert Webb, Jesse Armstrong and Sam Bain, David Quantick, James Barkman and Mark Evans, John Finnamore and Chris Reddy and the producer was Gareth Edwards.